All right, let's uh, let's pray, and then let's let's get into it. Let's pray and let's get right into it. Father, I'm so grateful for the task that you have commissioned to myself uh, and many others to preach and to proclaim your word and to gather to hear and receive it. This week, I pray that you would communicate to your people this morning. That you would do it through me, that you would do it through other pastors in this city, other shepherds, other leaders in this city. I pray that you would speak to your people this morning. I pray for all the other churches meeting, in particular in Fort Worth and especially in East Fort Worth. I pray that you would reveal yourself in a special way. That people would come to know and love the King through the preaching of the word. That they would remember what is true from the message. That you would lower critical ears and raise spiritual perception to know what it is you have for them. That they would have ears to hear and eyes to see what the text is teaching and saying. Father, I pray that you would bless us in that way this morning. And that our hearts and minds would be entombed and engrossed in your word. Lead us in such a way. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Would you do this for us, O God? We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's an honor and a joy to be able to open up God's word with you. What we normally do here at Pillar Church is we take a book of the Bible and we walk through it chapter by chapter, section by section, verse by verse. And the aim is to lead people closer to Jesus and each other. And this morning we get to start a whole new sermon series in the book of Malachi and we're calling it True Worship. And I'm excited to start this sermon series in the book of Malachi called True Worship because God expects nothing less from us other than authentic, true worship. This is what he expects from us. But there's always a conundrum that we're trying to answer as we go through a sermon series or a book. And the conundrum is coming from the book of Malachi is that people don't worship God anymore. People don't worship God anymore. We've stopped or, or at least we do so in part. We, we, we worship a little bit of God here, and then we worship some other things over here. And ultimately, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping a mash, a mishmash of, of foolishness put together. And we have a, a pseudo um, uh, a pseudo biblical justification for what it is that we're doing. What we, what we end up doing in our culture, in our days, we end up worshiping culture. We end up worshiping career. We end up worshiping getting our way. We end up worshiping power. We end up worshiping financial security. We end up prioritizing leisure and laziness. We worship everything but the main thing. I want to call you to do this. Take a look at your life and I want you to consider what it is that you're worshiping this morning. What is it that has a priority on par with or higher than worshiping King Jesus? What is it? 
As you look at your life, I want you to honestly say, honestly think about this. Do you give God your sloppy seconds? Do you give him what's left over in your life instead of giving him the first fruits? Most of us do. We we give J- Jesus his weekend lip service and then we're off to engage in Jesusless activities for the rest of the week. I know I'm talking to somebody this morning. Do you remember when God first saved you by his grace through faith? When God first opened your eyes to his grace and mercy? Do you remember that time when God opened your eyes and you were on fire? There was no such thing as a Jesusless activity at that point. I don't know if you remember this. I remember when the Lord saved me, 2005. There was no such moment, no such time when I wasn't worshiping the king. I was always I was always thinking about him. I was always wondering about him. I wanted to know more about his word. His word was alive to me. I was hungry. I brought him to the basketball court. I brought him to the barbershop. I brought him to, 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 to my friend's house. I brought him to school. I brought him to work. Everywhere I went, I was talking about, thinking about, uh, uh, pondering on King Jesus. Like he, 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 There was no time for him to exit my mind. He was just always ever present in my heart and in my mind. His word was alive to me. It was breathtaking. It was amazing. And I loved it. Do you remember when God saved you? And did you have a point where you couldn't stop thinking about the king and what he's done for you? Do you remember that? And now it's gone. For many of us now, we're ashamed to worship King Jesus in public. Because somebody's going to call us weird. Our culture doesn't approve of us worshiping Jesus. And so we put him on the back burner in order to advance in a culture that sees him as no longer necessary. Do you do that? Have you done that? I've done that. Some of us are too busy to worship the king at home. That one hits home for me. We're lazy when it comes to worship of the king, especially in our homes, teaching our children, reading the word of God along with them. I'm talking to myself on this. Is the blood of the savior no longer precious? Is the blood of the savior no longer precious? Have we let the circumstances of life suffocate our faith in such a way that our worship is merely a brick veneer on a house of idolatry? That's my question. Have we allowed our circumstances or the circumstances of our lives to suffocate our faith in such a way that our worship is merely the brick veneer on the house of idolatry? Guys, guys, we've drifted away from true worship. And here's the thing about the word drifting. Drifting is when you're moving uh, in a particular direction, but it's imperceivable. Here's the definition of drift of drifting. To be moved by wind and currents. And drifting is imperceivable without an immovable standard to measure it by. So if you're in a boat, you end up drifting away from the shoreline. But you don't know that you're drifting until your eyes gaze upon the shoreline and you realize that you're no longer lining up with the, uh, with the uh, immovable standard, which is the shore. It's not moving. You are. But it's imperceivable. And you don't notice it usually until it's too late. You don't notice a drift until you've already begun to drift. 
Are you drifting right now? Many of us have been drifting for years. We've been drifting and driven by cultural and political winds. We've been moved by fear and emotional currents. Our loyalties have subtly shifted and we didn't even notice it. What's your loyalties this morning? And I, and I know I'm asking you a lot of these questions, but I want you to seriously consider the state of your worship. Is it true? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? Is it pointed toward one person, one being, and one person and being only, that being King Jesus? Or do you have a divided worship and you have a, 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 a perception of yourself to be worshiping King Jesus, but the reality is there are many things who are sitting upon his throne with him, and there's only room for one on the seat. And we feel like we feel less of a bite when we shift him over and put something else. They see our culture will bite us as soon as we contradict it. And so what do we do? We try to, we try to, to inch it up on par with, with Jesus. And this is our personal time with, you know, in our home and, and privately. And this is our public. But, it's, but God, Jesus is like, no, there's one seat and there's one spot on this throne. And who sits upon it? Is it your ambition? Is it this culture? Is it this? Is it your political ideologies? What is it? What's really driving what you think and what you believe? Our loyalties have subtly shifted and we didn't even notice it. But God, through the prophet Malachi, has a word for us. God is demanding true worship from us. And as we go through this sermon series, I pray that your worship will be calibrated, readjusted, and that by the end of the sermon series, there's no one other than King Jesus sitting upon the throne of your soul, your heart, and your mind. There was a friend that I uh, got the, the, the pleasure of sharing the gospel with. And as I'm sitting down with him, I'm telling him about the love of God and how Jesus sent his son to redeem a people from their sin. And he did so all in the name of love and his glory. And my friend kept telling me like, yo, there's no way that Jesus can love me. There's no way that he loves me. It's not true, it's not real, he doesn't love me, why? Because of all the stuff I've done, he can't love me. And then he proceeded to say, it's proof that he doesn't love me because look at all the things that I've experienced and gone through. Where was God when X, Y, Z happened to me? Where was God when, you know, happened to me? Where was God? And he was angry and he was animated and his blood started to boil because I'm like, yo, bro, God, God still got you. I, I'm trying to explain, explain the sovereignty of God and the existence of sin and all these things together. And he's like, nah, nah, if God loved me, then X, Y, Z. And that's exactly where we find ourselves this morning in this passage. The people of Israel, 450 years, 450 years, uh, in 450 B.C., are having the same issue with God. Where were you? And in the book of Malachi, chapter one, the first five verses, God is going to explain something to his people concerning where he was. Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter one. We're going to look at verses one and part of verse two. And just so you know, this verse breakdown of the book of Malachi is really funky. It's really funky. So we're going to stop halfway through verses and such because the thoughts are what we're trying to capture. Not necessarily the numbered verses, but the thoughts, the flow of argument, the flow of thinking from the prophet Malachi. So Malachi chapter one, 
Verse 1 is just an introduction. It says, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Let's stop right there. I have loved you, says the Lord. Some of y'all need to hear that this morning. Some of y'all needed to hear that God loved them. But some of you this morning are struggling with that reality. You're struggling with these words from God. Many of us, like the people of Israel, are disillusioned with God. You see, Israel's worship had, had grown cold because they allowed their circumstances to be bigger and louder than God's words to them. See, by this point in the book of Malachi, Malachi's audience is coming back from 70 years in captivity in Babylon, 70 years of Babylonian captivity. They were brought back to the promised land, but they were still struggling to see God's hand in it all. And it makes sense why they had been beaten and battered. They had been uh, the homeland had been destroyed. They got brought to a foreign land with foreign gods and a foreign culture stuffed down their throat. Crucial elements of their faith and their identity have been ripped away from them. And now they're back home. They're free from Babylonian captivity and Babylonian chains now, but they're still mentally and physically, uh, mentally and spiritually chained. They're still mentally and physically in bondage. They're acting a fool once they get back home, but they're acting a fool because they don't know who they are. They're acting a fool because they don't know who they are and they don't remember what God has done. They're not even considering what God has done. And so they're acting a fool. 70 years in, ba in, in Babylonian captivity has left them genera generationally broken, spiritually aloof, and identity impaired. And so the circumstances around them were bigger than God's word to them. And they're viewing God as less than worthy of worship and less than loving. And I know that y'all can relate to this. How many of us view God because of the circumstances around us? We end up viewing God as less than loving and less than worthy of worship. I know I have at times, especially this past year. Uh, this past year for some people has been the hardest year of their life. For many this past year, they lost loved ones. They lost their jobs and their ability to provide. They lost their health. They lost friends. Not only did they may, may have lost friends in terms of life and death, but some of us lost friends because of political issues. Some of us lost friends because the political ideologies didn't line up. And so there was a schism in the friendship. Some of us felt betrayed by friends and family over like systemic racial issues and how the country needs to deal with particular racial things that are going on. And so now there's a division between you and people that you say you once loved. Some of us have this anxiety in us and we keep wondering, am I sick? Am I sick? Like some of us can't even cough or sneeze without like going crazy because we're wondering whether or not we're sick. There's been a spike in mental health issues this past year and the government's going to continue to take control of things, you know, tighter and tighter. And, you know, they're not going to take their hands off it anytime soon because that's not what the government does. But in the midst of all of that, that's probably happening or happened to you last year. And I hope I didn't bring up no PTSD. But the reality is last year was hard, B. Last year was tough. 
But in the midst of the circumstance, in the midst of the hardness, in the midst of the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the losing of friends, in the midst of all of that, God still has the audacity to say, I have loved you. And that's the same feeling that these Israelites are feeling. It is like, I have loved you. Some of y'all this morning believe and can feel God's love, even in the midst of the circumstances. But others of you this morning can't fathom God's love for you because if God loved you, where was he at last year? And like my friend in the beginning of the message, he's like, nah, nah, not where was, where were you at last year? Where you been my whole life? Where you at God? How you let my life go down like that? I'm a decent person. I do decent things. I'm no worse than anybody else, but you let my life go to ruin like this was really good. God, where you at? Where you been? God don't love me. Don't tell me you love me. Am I talking to somebody this morning? Some of us are right where the people of Israel were in verse two. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Look at verse two. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? Remember, they're coming off 70 years of Babylonian captivity, beaten, kidnapped, culture stuffed down their throat, their culture erased, right? Some of us Christians are still trying to figure this thing out. We're wondering, yeah, how does God love us in the midst of all this? How has he loved us? And some of you who don't believe are thinking that you already got this thing figured out. But do you? Do you have this thing figured out? You ever been mad about something? Like you told... Uh, like like you were waiting for a package to come to your house and then when the the package didn't arrive the way or the place or the, or the location that you thought it was going to arrive and so you were real mad about it and you called the manager and you started screaming at him well I'm looking for my package da, da, da. but lo and behold you just forgot that you actually altered the date and the location of when the package was going to be delivered see we think we got things figured out and then we look back and we, we kind of scroll back in history and we go, oh, you know what? I actually told them to bring the package on this day rather than this day because it was going to rain on this day. Or I told them to, to put it in the back because I feared my package might get stolen. Or it's funny. It's funny what happens when we forget. See, we feel all privileged and able to be angry and, and, and we feel like we have a right to be discontent. But uh, forgetfulness will always lead to discontentment. If you had just remembered, you wouldn't have felt that way. If you had just remembered, things would have been smooth. You would have been good if you had just remembered that the problem is we forget. The problem is we don't consider. The Israelites have forgotten who they were and they have forgotten what God has done for them. And so when God says, I've loved you, they go, how have you loved me? In the same way, when God tells us that he loves us, oftentimes our response is, well, God, how? How? Because they're looking at God through the lens of their current circumstance. And when you're looking at him through the lens of your current circumstance, for some reason, we're blind and we tend to forget all that God may have done in the past. Or we don't give him credit for what he's done in the past. And so it's easy to be angry and, 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 and discontent with him when, we're, when we forget. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 again. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Now, now, now here's God's answer to the Israelites 
rhetorical question. How have you loved us, right? Here's God's answer. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? You see that in verse 2? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. That's the beginning of verse 3. Now, I know some of y'all are looking at that and you're like, what? Like, how is that even an answer? Because I know, I know most of y'all are going to read that and you're like, all right. So did he answer that or did he not answer that? God answered it and he answered it in a particular way. And I'm going to try to explain how God just answered their question. In the book of Genesis, chapter 25 through 27, we have a story of Jacob and Esau. They're two brothers who would eventually become representative uh, ancestors to two particular nations. Jacob is the representative ancestor of Israel, or at least he's one of them. Esau is the representative ancestor of Edom. The two brothers were full of sin and hostility toward each other, and so weren't the nations that bore out of them. Hostility and sin on both sides toward one another. Yet God said he, he providentially loved one and he hated the other. This means that he accepted one and he made a covenant with one and he rejected or did not make a covenant with the other one. The one that he made a covenant with was, was, was Israel or, or Jacob and Israel and he didn't make a covenant with Esau and Edom. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 9 in your cross-reference sheet, Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 13, that God decided to do this even before the brothers or the nations were, were even born or created. This is called the doctrine of election and reprobation. The doctrine of election and reprobation basically teaches that God will sovereignly choose a, a, a people or a, per, a person, a grouping or whatever he's choosing, but he will actively leave alone the others. He'll leave them to their own devices. So he'll actively choose Abraham. But God didn't choose any of Abraham's contemporaries. He just chose Abraham. And then he actively chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac. And he left Ishmael alone. And then he actively chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. He chose Jacob. And then from Jacob, it's, and you, and you see, he's, 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 he's actively choosing and he's leaving the others to their own devices. This is called the doctrine of election and reprobation. So when he says that he loved one and hated the other, it's not an emotional type of language here. It's more so talking about the acceptance and covenant with one and the leaving the other to their own devices. That's what that those terms mean. Now, when, when God says that to Israel, he's calling them to look in the mirror and he's calling them to remember something. He's calling them to remember his covenant love for them. When God said, I loved you and that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, he's speaking to Israel, who are the descendants of Jacob. Right. Hear me on this. He's telling them, don't forget where you come from in the covenant I've made, the covenant of love that I've made with you. He, he says, how have I loved you? Over the years, if we just do a survey of just early on in the Old Testament, we see God's hand of love all over the place. In fact, I was talking to a friend just yesterday and, and he's reading through the Bible and he said, it's funny how we always say the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful God and the God of the New Testament is a gracious God. Because when you read the Old Testament looking for God's grace and his mercy, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. 
It's the same God in both Testaments. They didn't, he didn't change his disposition. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. For example, how, how God saved the whole nation of Israel from a famine in Genesis 37 through 50. Look in your cross-reverence sheet. But they rejected him by worshiping Egyptian gods. Right? God did a good thing and the people rejected him. Or how about Exodus 1, chapter 1 through all the way to chapter 32? How God saved the nation of Israel from, e from Egypt and the Egyptian Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, even providing food and water for them for their journey. And how did the people of Israel respond to God's redemption and saving? Well, they decided they're going to worship a golden calf. God is gracious to them. God is kind to them. God saves them. And they respond by worshiping a golden calf. It's funny what happens when you forget. Numbers chapter, chapter 11, how they complained every step of the way while they were in the wilderness, yet God does not destroy them. Numbers chapter 13 through 14, how God secured the land, the promised land for the Israelites to take. He, he said, this is your spot. This is your land. Go in there, take over that joint. It's yours. How did they respond? They refused to believe God and take over the land. Time and time again, Israel is found disobeying the Lord under the reigns of Joshua, the judges, the kings, and so forth. Yet time and time again, God is forgiving and restoring his people. What is God doing? He's calling them to remember. He says, how have I loved you? No, my friends. The question is, how could I still love and trust you? After all that I've done, after all that I've, I've, I've all the energy I've expended for you, I've done so much for you. How can I still love you right now? Because if you take a look back in history, all I've ever done was love you and, and redeem you and you repay me with idolatry. Don't ask me how can I love you? No, 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 no. Don't ask me how, to, how, how is it that I love you? No. How can I still love you after all that you've done? You've been untrustworthy and disobedient since Adam. You see, God's question is causing the Hebrew mind to go back and remember all that God has done. Didn't I accept Jacob? And aren't you descendants of Jacob? And didn't I protect Jacob's line? And wasn't I blessing Jacob's children? Hmm. But you say, how have I loved you? See, the question, we question God's love for us but we, we refuse to accept the consequences that our sin actually deserves. We, we refuse to acknowledge the reality and the existence of our sin and what it may has, have done to the one that we're desiring good things to come from. It's like biting the hand that feeds you. It's like being angry with somebody who has blessed you. You, you know, you haven't, you haven't met somebody who's perpetually innocent. They're never the one to blame. It's always somebody else's fault. And I know we all know these people. So I'm asking you, get, get a person, get a person in there. Like take your time right now. Get a person. Think of a face. You got a face. You got somebody in mind right now. That's what I want. I want you to have somebody in mind right now. You got them in mind. Think of a face. Who's that person that's always innocent. It's always somebody else's fault. I hope the person you're thinking about is you. Because that's the reality of the situation. You are always the innocent party. You are always the one that feels betrayed. You. It's always a problem. It's always somebody else. Always something happened. Oh, he didn't. She didn't. He didn't. Well, if God then, but no, no, no. You, you have an issue. 
You're ignorant to your sin. And when ignorance to your sin will be the heart of discontentment toward God. Guys, I know you find yourselves in tough circumstances on this side of heaven. I know because I'm here too. But we dare not accuse God of a lack of love, given that he gave his son beaten and crucified for our salvation. And he didn't even have to. He didn't even have to. We dare accuse God of a lack of love when we've rejected the author of life to his face time and time again. And yet we still walk, talk, eat, sleep, drink, laugh, be merry, play and go on about our day. Every day we put false gods on par with the God of Israel every day. He has to endure our idolatry, and yet we walk every day. We laugh every day. We eat every day. We move about our day. Every day we're doing something that is a, t a proof positive of his grace and love toward us. Yet we have the audacity to point our finger at him like he doesn't love us. You haven't considered your sin before him. What your sin has done to his soul, his heart, whatever. God hates sin. And it's only by his mercy that we sin and he doesn't destroy us. It's only by his love that we sin and he doesn't destroy us. We are just like the people of Israel, are we not? We're just like them, quick to forget and negate God's love and care for us over the years and feeling justified in our, angry, in our anger with him when he doesn't answer our beck and call. You know what else we do? I just thought of this. We only allow his blessings to last in our mind a day or two at max. I know people who prayed for this XYZ, they received it. And so the next time they prayed, they expected to receive it with the same amount of time, expedited prayer, prayer answering, right? They, they thought it was going to come and it didn't come. And so now they're angry. Now they're bitter. Now they're in their feelings because God didn't do it. Well, God did it then and God loves you. And so there may be a reason why God isn't answering. I don't know the reason. I never know the reason. But the idea is we're, we're quick to get angry, get bitter and get in our feelings when he doesn't do what we want him to do. What we want is a genie. We don't want a God. We want a genie that answers and worships us. We don't want a God that we submit to and worship. You ever use somebody? Uh, I'm sorry. Have you ever been used by somebody like you don't really exist until they need something from you? Like we know those people who they never call you, never check in on you, don't really care about your existence. But as soon as they need something, you're the first one they ring it up. Think of somebody. Get somebody in your head. Get somebody in your mind. Who is it? Who's that person? Don't be fooled twice, y'all. Y'all already know where I'm going. Because that's exactly what we've done to God. We've turned him into the one we go to when we need. The one we go to when, when, when something wrong, something tragic is happening. Oh, Lord, help. Oh, Lord, provide. Oh, Lord, do, do, do. But when he's allowing things to be smooth, we ain't like, oh, praise God. We're, we're enjoying God. We're telling others of his goodness and grace. We ain't doing all that. It's just things are smooth in and of themselves. But when things are hard, it's, oh, God, I can't believe he... Oh, Lord, change this. Oh, God, why would you? All of a sudden, he's in the mix. We want a genie in a bottle. We don't want a, we don't want a God. Even for us Christians, we, 
We come to church on Sunday. We sing a hallelujah. We do a hand clap of praise. But I question our true, the fidelity of our worship. There's no true relationship with you and God. There's no heart after God. That's proof positive of drifting away. We're drifting. We're drifting. We're being influenced by something other than the word of God toward King Jesus. We're ignorant of our sin and we're entitled in our disposition. You see, the love of God is not just about what God has done for Israel or what he's done for you. That's not it. But it's also the love of God is also displayed in what God has spared you from and what he has not allowed to fall upon you. And that's the point that he's bringing up here. It's the often uh, it's the, the tandem words that we put together all the time, but we rarely define it's grace and mercy, grace and mercy. Grace is receiving something kind, something good, something great that you didn't deserve. It's a gift. Mercy is not receiving wrath that you deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. You see, there's a difference between corrective discipline and eternal wrath. God's people will never experience eternal wrath. But any good father will employ corrective discipline to his children. You see, the passage is calling Israel to consider the fact that God has been merciful to them and that we're to understand that his mercy is a part of his love toward us. They didn't receive the same punishment. You see, Edom and Israel committed the same sins. The sins of idolatry. Sins of hatred, sins of murder, sins of strife. They committed the same acts, yet God was merciful to them. And then they have the audacity to say, how have you loved me? And he's teaching them that my mercy towards you is a part of my love for you. Because Edom's end is completely different than Israel's end, which we're going to see in the passage. Malachi chapter 1. Verses two, I'm going to read from two all the way through verse four. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now we're going to pick up right here. I turned, this is God speaking. He says, I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Edom sinned just like Israel. However, one was at the end of the day, one was full of pride, saying that we're going to rebel against the Lord and we're going to continue to build. And the other one in, in history was, well, we're going to repent and turn back to the Lord, even though they continuously do this cycle of they find themselves in trouble. They repent. They come back to the Lord and they find themselves back having idol uh, having an issue of idolatry. And then they find themselves in trouble. Then they repent. Then they come back to the Lord. And then they find, you know, this is a cycle that Israel keeps falling in. But Enam's on some more like, nah, we reject him. You know, it's idolatry all day with them. And he's like, no, nah, I, I, I destroy them for their idolatry. I didn't destroy you. What's this contrast supposed to teach us? 
The contrast is teaching us this, that God's wrath is irrevocable, but so is in his love. His wrath will ensure that Edom goes down in history, in the history books as a wicked and cursed people. But his love will ensure that all those who turn and trust in Yahweh, who is Jesus, will go down as beloved children of God. And God promises a sure, true. Yes, God's promises are sure, true. Yes. And amen in Christ Jesus or in Yahweh. Can you really question God's love for you when you consider his mercy towards you? You still breathing, you under the sound of my voice, which means you still have time, which means God has not initiated his act of wrath upon you who have yet to put your trust in Jesus, yet are under the sound of my voice and being called to place your trust in him. He's being gracious to you. He's being merciful to you because what you deserve is instantaneous wrath from God upon your first sin. But what does he do? He allows you to hear the good news of his son and he's calling you unto himself. He's hearkening you to come to place your trust in King Jesus thereby applying his blood and by the power of his resurrection, saving your soul from his wrath. God is saving you from God. That's that's mercy. That's love. Christian, what has God spared you from? Think back in your past. Think back before you were even a Christian. Think back at those close encounters, those things that you've endured and and, and that God rescued you from. And lean on those when the circumstances of life are such a thick cloud that you are having a hard time believing his words of love towards you. Remember the past and use it as a stool to hold you firm when you, can, when you feel like you can't stand on your own. Use it like the rock that, that was rolled under Moses. That his arms may be held up. That God may hold your hands up. When God says he loves you, he means that, mug. He ain't playing. And he wants you to consider his love for you from history past till now. Even the breath in your lungs is proof positive. God wants you to remember how he's loved you and worship him. Despite the circumstances, he wants Israel, who had just come back from 70 years of Babylonian captivity, to come home to look and to remember and to worship him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's calling us to do the exact same thing. Remember what God has done. Remember who he is and worship him. I didn't say it was easy, but that's the call. By grace, we will worship him. The same kind of worship we engaged in when we first came to faith. A life with little distance between you and him. People shouldn't be able to get you and not get him. People shouldn't be able to to see you and not see him. Your lips shouldn't be able to move too much without people being able to hear the name and the grace and the message of the Savior in some way, shape, or form, whether it's in testimony form or proclamation form, whatever it is, they shouldn't be getting too much of you and none of him. That's proof positive that you've drifted, that there's something else on the throne of your heart that is conflicting 
with your worship of King Jesus. Because some of us are known for things that have nothing to do with God. When people think of your name, what's the first thing they think of? And, and don't be all pie in the sky and flowery about it. Really think about it. When they think of you, what's the top five about you? Is anywhere in the top five, that's a man or woman who loves God. That's a man or woman of prayer, a man or a woman who loves King Jesus, a man or woman of the word. Does any of that come up? Or are you just known as the culturally relevant guy? The the tech guy, the, the engineer, the whatever it is, I don't know. And then God says this in verse five to Israel and he says it to you. This is the last verse. He says, your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, God's not saying that Israel is going to see all these things that he's talking about in his lifetime, that Edom will be destroyed and all that's going to happen all within a particular span of time. That's not the point he's trying to make. He's trying to say, keep them eyes open and you'll see. And the only proper response will be God is great. That will be your response. Keep your eyes open and you will see that God is great. Don't be deceived by the culture, by the political climate, or by your circumstance. Don't let what's happening around you take your eyes off of what God is doing in, through, and for you. And when you finally see all that he's done, you have eyes to see, you'll be moved and provoked to worship. How has God loved you? Has he not chosen Jacob and rejected Esau? His love for you is found in the new covenant, in the blood of Christ Jesus. Place your faith in him and his love for you will be felt for generations, not just by you, but by God's grace, even to your children and beyond. Redeemed, saved, adopted, restored and whole. Don't be quick to forget what God has done. Father, there's so much more in these five verses. But I thank you for allowing us to kind of walk through these five verses. And I pray that the people would be able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. And I pray that there was one thing that you said to them that they could hold on to that would change the disposition of their heart. One thing that was spoken that would lead them closer to you. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to try to pretend to, make, to, 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 to put it on people. I just pray that whatever it was, that it would stick to their ribs and that they would seriously consider the truth spoken through your prophet Malachi. And I pray that all that was good and worthy is remembered in their heart and mind and all that was not would be forgotten. Lord, fill their heart and their mind with you in Christ Jesus. We thank you and pray. Amen.